Well, thank you for your warm welcome this evening. I want to begin, obviously, by uh, passing on the greetings of Howell and Hedwin to the congregation here that they remember with much affection. I wonder if you're prepared yet for Christmas. I, I don't mean, of course, decorations and the dinner and the presents, but are you prepared Christianly? for Christmas. I want to help you do that uh, tonight uh, by looking at the Song of Mary that we generally know as the Magnificat, the name that's taken from the first word of the the Latin uh, translation of the Scriptures, uh, which means to make God great. And uh, so we'll we'll look at this passage, it's verses 46 to uh, 56 in Luke chapter 1, and the words of Uh, Mary, the Virgin Mary, as she responds to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary had gone to visit Elizabeth, and uh, Elizabeth had exclaimed in the words of verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, of course, it's, it's wrong for us to make too much of the Virgin Mary, to venerate her or to worship her, or even more so to consider her as a mediatrix through whom we may gain access to God, it would be unbiblical for us to think of Mary in terms such as those. And yet, by the same token, we should not think too little of the Virgin. We shouldn't underrate the importance of her and the significance that she has in Scripture. It's evident in the Scripture, isn't it, that she's seen as a very special person who is particularly blessed by God, which is what Mary is singing about in this this great song of praise. Clearly, God has done something very significant in the life of this woman, Mary. And it's not because she is the mother of our Lord primarily that we ought to regard her as being of great importance, but rather it's because of the sheer spiritual vitality in her life that becomes obvious as she sings this remarkable hymn of praise uh, from verse 46 in this chapter. Now, to see the importance and the relevance of this passage of Scripture to ourselves, it's helpful to think about just what it is exactly that God was doing in Mary's life at this point in time. And what God is doing, of course, is preparing the heart and mind of Mary for the first Christmas. And as we prepare for Christmas, there's no better way for us uh, to do that than to get into the spirit of these words of praise that Mary uh, sings here. I'm sure we're all aware of the danger that usually uh, pursues the, the people of God at this time of year. It would be all too easy for us to approach Christmas and to do so more under the influence of an ungodly world around us and an ungodly culture in which we live than to do so under the godly influences of Holy Scripture. So this is one of the best ways of approaching Christmas in a Christian way, to absorb something of the spirit that undergirds this great song of Mary. But then, before we come to the actual message, uh, there is another thing that's important for us to grasp. And that is that many people coming to a song like this in Scripture might ask the question, but how can I sing these words? 
Surely Mary is unique, and Mary's experience is so unique that only she could sing a song like this. Only she received a heavenly messenger who would tell her that she would be the mother of the Lord, so only she could sing a song like this. But then if you look at the passage more closely, and if you ask the question, what is it exactly that Mary is magnifying the Lord for in this song, you find that the answer is she is magnifying the Lord for this glorious privilege that is hers of having the Son of God dwell within her. That's the glorious thing that's about to happen to her. She's to have the Son of God within her, in her life. Now what we need to grasp is that this is the very thing over which her soul is exulting at this time, that this is the thing that brings her into the presence of God with such a deep sense of wonder and joy, but that this thing is in essence something that is true of every Christian believer. It's not only true of Mary. Mary, of course, is physically the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's very interesting that in the same chapter in the epistle to the Galatians, in chapter 4, where Paul says that Christ has been sent forth, born of a woman, born under the law, in the very same chapter, the apostle Paul says, I have labored in birth again, until Christ be formed in you, in every Christian. So, have you ever thought about this reality, that here is Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, glorifying and magnifying God because, because the Christ is to be formed in her, and yet there is a very much deeper and more wonderful sense in which Christ is formed in every Christian, in every believer, spiritually. We might sometimes sing the hymn, O Jesus Christ, grow thou in me. So you see, the, the essence of what it is that Mary is responding to, to here is something that we ourselves know in Christian experience. We know something of the glory of an indwelling Christ, of an indwelling Savior, if we are Christians. And one of the great implications of the incarnation and the Christmas message is that it is possible to have the Son of God dwelling in our lives. And the Christian way then to celebrate Christmas is to be glorying in a Christ who by faith is living in me, not just in the Virgin Mary. Now to do that, to magnify the Lord as Mary does here in this wonderful song, involves a threefold transformation, a, a, a revolution, we might say, that we see here that happens in Mary's life and that might, must likewise take place in our lives, in your life and in mine. The first is there was a transformation, a, a revolution in her view of God. The second is that there was a complete transformation, a turnaround in her view of man, and a complete change and revolution in her view of life. And these three things come through this wonderful song. So let's see then uh, this pattern here in Mary's song and notice a complete revolution in her view of God himself. In verse 49, her testimony is that he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
Now, as you read through Mary's song, you see that the way in which God has done great things for Mary is that he has made her into a woman who is, who is taken up with and is overflowing with a sense of the glory of God. That's what's happened to her at this time. This is one of the great changes that takes place in her life, and it is one of the most fundamental changes that is desperately needed in our lives. We need to know a sense, an ever-growing sense of the glory, the majesty, the greatness, the character of God. We see that in her theme. The very first thing she says is that her soul magnifies the Lord. That's quite literally what she says. It's, it's not that she just glorifies the Lord. It's not just that she praises the Lord, but she magnifies the Lord, which doesn't mean that she, she in any way wants to make God greater, because clearly that simply isn't possible. God is already and always infinite, eternal and unchanging. What it means is she wants to see the greatness of God. She wants to see his greatness ever more clearly. That's what a magnifying glass does, isn't it? Uh, A magnifying glass doesn't make the object any larger than it already is, but it gives us an enlarged view, a clearer appreciation. It brings home to us the greatness of what it is that we're looking at. And Mary says that this is what her soul is doing. She is magnifying the Lord, because of his greatness. She is rejoicing in God because of his greatness, and she has blessed God because of his mercy, that he has stooped down to have dealings with a woman like her. She describes him as mighty. She addresses him as the Lord, God my Savior, the Mighty One, the Holy One. In other words, here's a woman whose entire being is overflowing with an appreciation of the greatness and the glory and the wonder of God. Now, this really is something quite remarkable. This isn't something ordinary or everyday. You don't see this all of the time, do you? This is something relatively rare, and because of that, it's a notable thing. This is a woman of very real spiritual vitality, which is something that I fear I know myself very little of. And I suspect that most of you here tonight feel the same. Most of us are familiar with the old catechism question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I know very little of that in my own soul, being taken up with God. And in my own soul, I'm often feeling myself poverty-stricken at that point. Aren't you aware of that in yourself too? What we find here is a, a Christian woman overflowing with worship at the thought of the greatness of God and the sheer wonder of all that God is to her. She doesn't need anybody to stimulate her to worship. She doesn't need new forms of worship to be suggested to her. She is, she is stirred up by the sheer glory and majesty of God. She doesn't need new ideas. She doesn't need some new study program to help her in her worship. No, her, 
Entire being is wholly taken up with God. With her whole body and soul, she is overflowing with praise to the Lord. But why? Why is Mary stirred to worship like this? We could imagine that today some might say, well, it, of course it must be that angel that came and spoke with her. She had a supernatural visitation of this powerful spiritual being coming to her from another world, from heaven, and bringing a message just for her. Surely that must have excited this woman and stirred up her, her appetite and her ambition for worship. But no, it's not that, you see. It's rather that God, the Holy One, has come to her to bring the Son of God into her life, which is the testimony of everyone who is a Christian. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Now, there are some commentators who can be almost dismissive of this wonderful song of Mary. They say, well, it's obvious. It's quite evident that this story is this song has been just cobbled together from Old Testament texts of Scripture. 1 Samuel, for example, chapter 2, where we have the song of Hannah. It's just a rehash, they say, of that. Or, or just compare this song with the Psalms. And you'll see that Mary is using bits and pieces from the Psalms. Verse 49 is from Psalm 111. Verse 50 is from Psalm 103. Verse 53 is from one, Psalm 107 and so on. And on you can go through this song. And so some suggest that someone has just cobbled all this together and made up this song and put it into the mouth of Mary. That it's just bits and pieces of the Old Testament. It's amazing how blind people can be. Isn't it rather more obvious that Mary has soaked her soul in the Word of God. She has filled her mind with God's Word. And then when she finds herself in the presence of God and wanting to express her praise to God and her worship to God, it's her knowledge of Scripture that just pours out of her lips and she magnifies God with the words of Scripture. That's what makes this such a gloriously biblical song of praise. Her heart, her soul, her mind is steeped in the Word of God and it just flows out from her. And not only so, but she herself had had personal dealings with God. She'd expressed His grace uh, in, in her life and as a result, uh, she knows this holy joy, the sheer wonder uh, of worship that causes her whole soul and being to overflow in the presence of her God and Saviour. Now that is the key to a radically different view that she has of God. And of course, this isn't something that is exclusive uh, to her, but this is something that ought to be characteristic of every Christian, of you tonight, if you're a Christian. Uh, you absorb the Word of God as Mary absorbed that word as Mary had dealings with God, there was a natural overflow of worship that was couched in the language of Holy Scripture. And that's how we should be preparing our souls to celebrate Christmas, it seems to me, in a Christian way, by a radical, transforming view of God Himself, so that we are stirred by this 
ever-expanding, expansive view of the greatness and the wonder of who God is that just flows out in an irrepressible outpouring of worship to him. Then in the second place, we see here a radically different view of man, uh, or of man and woman. I'm using the word man there in a generic sense, you understand. I'm speaking about humankind. Now this follows logically from having a proper view of God. Because it's only when God is in his rightful place in our thinking that we can think of man in the proper way. Notice here how Mary describes herself. It really is quite wonderful. In verse 38, she describes herself as the Lord's servant. And then in verse 48, she magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Saviour, because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And throughout the whole song, it's clear, isn't it, that she recognises the position she's in. I am the Lord's servant. She says to the angel in verse 38, and that flows right through this song. And again, there's something striking in that, because what we're seeing here in, Mer in Mary, uh, the, the servant is, is, is the servant of the Lord is about to be carried in her womb. You know how the, the prophets speak about the servant of the Lord, the perfect servant of the Lord. She's about to carry him, the one who's foretold in Old Testament Scripture, the ideal servant. And we see her now describing herself in exactly the same terms. You don't very often hear the words of Mary and the rest of the New Testament Scripture, but it is interesting that when her words are recorded for us, they're very often couched in the language of a servant. And in that sense, what you see is that Mary becomes like her son. Remember the wedding at Canaan and her words to the servants at the wedding. Whatever he says to you, do it. Those are the words of a servant. And this is the great characteristic of the life of Mary. There's a striking likeness and harmony between Mary and her indwelling Saviour, whom Mary needed to save her just as you and I need to save us. But is there the same harmony of spirit between us, between you, and the indwelling Christ? If you're his child, is your character, is your life, and your bearing in life that of a servant of the Lord? That, you see, requires a radical change of your view of, of man, of yourself, and of your place and standing in the world. It's revolutionary thinking to see this in a, a converted man is a sure sign that he is converted. It is a distinctively Christian thing to think of yourself as a servant of the Lord. We know, don't we, our natural propensity. We, we see it over and over again in the Gospels. We see the way in which our Lord repeatedly had to instruct the disciples about this very matter. You remember how they would 
continually be pushing themselves forward. They would be bickering and arguing as to which of them was the greatest in the kingdom and so on. They were always seeking place and position. They wanted to establish an order and a precedence amongst them with each one of them in, pers- in, in place thinking they were the top of the pile. And there was our Lord Jesus Christ standing with them and amongst them as the one who was going to bring himself to the ultimate point of service where he would submit to death on the cross and he says to his disciples over and over again, he who would be first must be the servant of all. Don't we have the same problem as the disciples though? Even in relation to God, rather than recognizing that we are created and we are redeemed to serve him, we want him to serve us We want God to fulfill our desires and our designs. Isn't that what sadly so often lies behind our prayers? We're so often trying to get God to do what we've planned, trying to enlist him to be our servant. I'm reminded of um, Joshua, how how that time came when he was being appointed as the leader of the children of Israel. He was preparing for battle And he had gone up to prepare an assault on Jericho. And as he's standing there viewing the city, he's approached and confronted by an advancing warrior. And he draws his sword and says to this mighty warrior, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the answer was no. I'm for neither. Because the question you see is not whether I'm on your side. The real question is whether you're on mine. I have come as captain of the Lord of hosts. That's the issue then for Joshua, who needed to learn that the the basis of leadership is becoming a servant of God and of God's people, rather than imagining that God is our servant and doing our bidding. Have you learned that lesson yet? Because that is the great change, the radical shift that took place in the thinking of Mary And in her life, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. And of course, that that will be foremost seen in our attitude to Holy Scripture. Because that primarily is where the will of God is made known to us and revealed to us. That's where he makes known to us his mind and his thoughts. When you are reading Scripture, you are thinking God's thoughts after him. And to be a servant of God means that when God speaks, the matter is settled. The matter is already decided. If he declares it in his word, that's the end of the issue for a servant of the Lord. Is that how you live your life? Is that how you think about Holy Scripture? Is that the basis on which your life proceeds in the world today? Because if you're a Christian, then the Son of God who lives within you has no other interest whatever but fulfilling the Father's will. And if you have any other interest than that, well, then I can guarantee you, you ought not to be surprised that there's an inner conflict in your life if you're a Christian, because you are going to be in conflict with the indwelling Christ if you have any other desire than to do the Father's will and to live in obedience to him. And then, 
Thirdly and finally, notice here Mary's radically changed view of life. The Son of God has completely inverted her values. He's turned upside down her view of life. He scatters the proud, she says, and puts down the mighty. He exalts the lowly and sends away the self-satisfied, and he fills the hungry. You see, what Mary has found is that real life is not found among the proud and the self-sufficient and the arrogant and the godless and the self-satisfied. Real life is found amongst the lowly. Real life is found with those who fear God. Verse 50, his mercy is on those who fear him. That is the life to be coveted. That's the life that you are to seek and to pursue. A life of spiritual riches, a life full of spiritual values, a life that fears God, a life that humbles self, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Mary is magnifying God because he blesses such a life as that. Now, this is the kind of radical change that we need to be properly prepared for Christmas. This is what having the Son of God in your life produces. It's all summed up in what Mary says in verse 15, that God's mercy is extended to those who fear him. Because fearing the Lord, you see, is central to the Bible's description of the life of a child of God. What is it to fear God? Do you know? Well, it's not that I'm afraid of God in the sense that I'm terrified of him, but rather that God means so much to him that I fear what my disobedience will do to him more than what my disobedience will do to me. The fear of the Lord is the condition of people whose entire lifestyle is given over to obeying him. They fear God most who obey him best. That's what Mary discovered, and it's a wondrous discovery. She had a new view of God, a new view of man, and a new view of how to live life itself. I, I, wonder, I wonder what are the things that really matter to you? What are the things that drive you as you go through this week and you're, you're focusing on on next Saturday, Christmas Day, and you're preparing for that day, what, what, what is it that drives you and motivates you and moves you? What is it that really decides issues for you? When you're facing various matters and various questions, how do you decide? How do you reach a conclusion in those things? Having the Son of God in our lives means that there should be one really pressing, overriding matter in our life. And that should be the fear of God, living in the fear of God and deciding whether what I do, decide and think, pleases Him or not. Is that what rules my life? Is that what rules your life, I wonder? This is what happens when the Son of God dwells in you, when he comes to live within you. You have a radically new view of God, a radically transformed view of yourself, 
your standing in the world, and a radically different approach to living life. How wonderful it would be if our preparation for Christmas brought that to us. The Lord bless his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies and your grace to us, renewed to us day by day. We thank you that those mercies come to us from eternity, your blessings overflowing to us moment by moment and carrying us safely to glory. We pray that as we approach Christmas again this year, that we might know this transformation that takes place in the people of God as Christ dwells in us, that we would have an expanding and expansive view of your glory, your majesty and your grace, and that we would see ourselves always as servants, ready to do your bidding, to hear your voice and to live in obedience to you. And help us, Lord, in everything, in our view of life, uh, to, to live as those in whom the living Christ dwells. We ask it for your name's sake and glory. Amen. Amen. We'll sing to close hymn number uh, 171. 171. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King.
Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and ever. Amen.